And now hear God's word from 1 Samuel chapter 27, continuing our study in the book of 1 Samuel. Here is God's holy word. David said in his heart, now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines and Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in that in any part of Israel. So I shall escape out of his hand. Then David arose and went over with the 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. So David dwelt with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he sought him no more. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, indeed, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks that we have heard it uh, and we have sung it and we have read it today. And now we pray that you would give us an extra measure of your Holy Spirit, that we might receive it and understand it. Father, not everything in your word is, is a, as easy to understand as other parts. And when we come to a difficult part like this today, tough for us to understand, we pray that your spirit would speak clarity to us, that we would be given an extra measure of wisdom so that we can divide your word rightly and hear what you have to say to us. So Father, guide us now in this time, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have you ever thought about where you would live if for some reason you couldn't live here in this nation anymore, for some reason, whether it was war or persecution or pestilence or or famine, or some other thing that would drive you out and where you just simply could not live here anymore, where, where would you go? Have you ever thought about that? There have been a few times over the past 20 years because of the political or social or cultural climate where I thought, hey, there's got to be somewhere else, right? I mean, there's, there's got to be somewhere I can go. New Zealand? No. Australia? Uh, you know, you start to think, uh, I, I don't want to have to learn another language, right? I mean, you've got to move somewhere where they speak English or some form of English. Have you ever thought about how difficult it would be to just pick everything up and migrate to another country, maybe to never return? And I've pointed out this before, but it continues to be a, a source of amazement to me. All of us have ancestors who at one point in history picked up everything that they owned, put it into a trunk or a bag or a sack, and they got onto a wooden boat with canvas sails and sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, not knowing exactly what they were going to face when they got on the other side. There were uh, more questions than answers. How will we eat? Where will we live? What will we do for work? Sometimes for some of our ancestors, there were language barriers and cultural barriers in the new place. And the question, will we ever get to go back home or is this it? Maybe we'll get to write home and hope that the letters make it, uh, but we may never see grandma again. We may, we may never see mom and dad again, or, or aunt and uncle, or cousins. Uh, these, these questions uh, are all weighty, but what outweighs all of these questions and what outweighs all of these anxieties is the need to get out and to go somewhere else because of persecution or because of lack of opportunity or lack of work or lack of food. And what an enormous step it must have been 200 years ago or more in a time where the world was a lot bigger than it is today, where, where information was a lot harder to come by, where travel was a lot more dangerous. 
How do you pick up your family and just move to a foreign country? You must have to be pretty courageous to, to make that move. And that's the spot that David is in now at this point in our study of Samuel. He has been pursued by the wicked and the murderous Saul all this time. Twice he has had an opportunity to kill Saul. Twice he's had the opportunity to reach out his hand and take away the source of his distress. And there were a lot of people who had have praised him for that. But twice he has, with, he has withheld his hand and hasn't taken that opportunity. And at some point, after all the stress, after all this anxiety, after someone hunting you down and trying to kill you, at some point you get tired of running. And this is David's spot that he is in. He has a family to look after at this point. Unfortunately, he has two wives, but with two wives, he's uh, got more concerns because now he's got children as well, most likely. He also has 600 men with him, and it's likely that they had their wives and their children as well. So if you do the math and you add it up, and if you take in children and servants and wives into account, David may have an entourage of somewhere between 3,000 and 5,000 people with him trying to feed them and care for them and lead them uh, in, in the wilderness. Now, uh, I want to back up a second and say that David is being thrust out of the land because of Saul's persecution. But remember what also precipitated this last round of Saul's persecution. It was David's disobedience. It was because of David's failure uh, in, in taking multiple wives that God has now stirred up his countrymen of Judah, and he stirred up Saul to now drive David out of the land. And that theme is present as well. But now David, he, the practical reality is I've got three to 5,000 people now to care for. And, and the small city that David has with him, they can't rest in David's home country of Judah. The men of Judah keep undermining their peace and their security. They can't get along with the men of the land who, like Nabal, refuse to trade with them and refuse to feed them when they're hungry. Everything is a fight. Everything is uphill. Everything is upstream. Everything is desperation and anxiety. And so David, in desperation, goes to the Philistines just so he can get some peace and rest. Now, now that shows you just how bad things are in Judah if he has to go to the Philistines to get some peace. Just, but just so his people can have a night without conflict, he, he has to stop running. If he stays in Judah, he knows that Saul's not going to give up. Even though the last time we saw Saul, it looks like everything's fine. We know, and David knows, it's not fine. Saul's going to uh, come back at some point. But David thinks, if I go to the Philistines, at, perhaps Saul will stop pursuing me because Saul doesn't like fighting Philistines. I mean, that's his job. God called Saul to fight the Philistines. That was the purpose. God gave Israel their own giant, Saul, to, to be their champion. But, but Saul hasn't done that. He shirked his responsibility. David knows it's the one place he can go to, uh, to not get hit by Saul, to not get struck by Saul's anger. And so, so David leaves the land. Remember the last time David interacted with Saul, David said to Saul, you're, you're driving me out of the inheritance of the land that God has given me and my people. You are telling me, go serve other gods. Well, now David literally goes and lives among the pagans. And, and indeed, Saul stops pursuing him at this point. 
If you remember, this isn't the first time that David has gone to find refuge with the Philistines, and specifically the Philistine king Achish, who's mentioned here. Remember back in chapter 21, the first time that David was running from Saul, he, he left Saul's house and went to the Philistines, but everybody recognized him as the, as the champion who killed Goliath. Everybody recognized him as the man that everyone was singing songs about. And that's when David started to act as if he were mad. He, he acted as if he were insane to just kind of escape so nobody would take him as a serious threat. And, uh, and he had to leave there. This is a few years later, and now things are different at this point. David uh, is, is still younger than 30. He becomes king at 30, so he's still a man in his 20s, but he's more seasoned, he's more mature. The, the climate has changed. He's known now for more than simply being the killer of Goliath. Uh, he is now known as the opponent of Saul throughout all of the regional nations. And uh, his opposition to Saul has been publicized. His exploits are well known. And, and so when he comes to prevent, present himself before Achish, king of Gath, the Philistine king, he's known now as, as kind of a warlord. David with this great, when he, when he came the first time to Achish's court, David was by himself. Now he comes with thousands of people and he has some weight and he has respect. And Philistia embraces David. They think, well, the enemy of the king of Israel is trying to ally with us. That's a good thing because the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so, yes, we want David on our side, David, the killer of Goliath. And by the way, we didn't like that guy anyway. You know, it's been a few years. Time has time passed. Water's gone under the bridge. And everybody's thought, well, you know, Goliath wasn't that great, maybe, after all. Uh, he had bad breath and he yelled all the time and uh, nobody really liked him. So now they embrace David and, uh, and David comes, as, as David comes to Achish for protection. Now, David is going to conveniently leave out some things, and he's going to continue to be very selective with the information that he gives to Achish. First of all, David says nothing of the fact that he could have killed Saul twice uh, and spared his life. He's not going to roll up into Achish's court and say, by the way, I could have killed him, but I didn't. That would have made him look very weak. There's a lot more that he's going to leave out of his conversations with Achish, as we'll see. But so much of David's life repeats and overlaps with the lives of the patriarchs of Israel. This getting pushed out of the land and now ending up with the Philistines. Remember, always remember, Philistines are descendants of Egypt. And so when we're dealing with Philistines, we're dealing with Egyptians. I remember how Abraham was pushed out of the land and had to go to Egypt for a while. How Isaac had to go to the Philistines. How Joseph ended up in Egypt. Uh, David is recapitulating this story. This is his Egypt episode. David especially echoes Joseph in this part of his life because uh, David's brothers, the men of Judah, have sold him down the river, just like Joseph's brothers did. And, and David ends up among the Egyptians, just like Joseph did. And what, what David finds here is what Joseph found, which is that you have greater hospitality among the Egyptians than you do among your brothers. Joseph found that. David found that. And David does well among the Philistines, just as Pharaoh loved Joseph. Uh, Achish honors David as well. But there's, there's kind of this sour note that, that, gets, that, that is sounded right at the end of verse 4. Uh, I'm sorry, right at the end of verse 3 when we're reminded David is bringing his wife and children 
into Egypt. And we're supposed to read that and we're supposed to say, oh, oh no, I know what happens. What happens to the woman and the seed in Egypt? They're always attacked, right? Abraham's wife was attacked. Isaac's wife was attacked. Uh, the, the, the woman and the boys of, e uh, of Israel were attacked in Egypt. The woman and the seed are under attack when you go to Egypt. It may be a short-term solution, but they're going to be attacked. Well, the attack comes two chapters later in chapter 29. We'll come back to that next week. Uh, but, but we're supposed to notice that here because it's going to come back. I'm going to pick up and I'm going to read the rest of chapter 27 to hear about David's exploits in Philistia. Verse five, David said to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four months. And David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, the Amalekites, for those nations were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as you go to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. Whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man nor woman alive, but took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. Then Achish would say, where have you made a raid today? And David would say, against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Jeremelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, lest they should inform on us, saying, thus David did. And thus was the behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, he has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he will be my servant forever." Well, uh, there's so much here, but first of all, David boldly goes into Achish's presence and says, you've got to give me a town to live in. I, I am not worthy to live here in your royal city. Give me some little uh, backwater town to go live in, and I'll be just fine. Uh, well, David needs a place for all his people to dwell, but he doesn't need to be under the constant supervision of Achish. He needs to have some freedom of movement. And so Achish is happy to give David a city, the city of Ziklag is 25 miles away from Gath. Plenty of room for David to go do his own thing. But this town and this area that David is moving into is very significantly part of the territory that God gave to the tribe of Judah back in Joshua's day. This area was marked out for Judah. And yet here in David's day, there are still Canaanites living there. Remember, at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua, they don't finish up all the work that they've been given to do. There are still these pagan Canaanite nations living within the borders of the territory that God gave them. And this is one of those very examples of that. This is an area that hasn't been conquered. Now David picks up the, the sword that God gave to Judah centuries before, and he now conquers it, and he's going to continue carrying out the conquest that his people failed to complete all these years. Even in exile, David is a princely warrior who carries out Yahweh's very old set of orders concerning the Canaanite tribes, those who live in the territory who've never been fully flushed out. Now, just about every Samuel commentary you'll pick up if you if you check out commentaries and you read commentaries on the Bible, you're going to see here that just about everyone is going to chastise David for doing this, 
for going around shedding blood and killing these Canaanite tribes, these Amalekites. But um, the Amalekites, nothing has changed with God's attitude toward these nations. Nothing has changed since the day of Joshua. The Amalekites are still under the ban. They are still under God's curse of, uh, against the Canaanites. They're still under the judgment God pronounced against Canaan. Remember, Saul fell when he refused to carry out the destruction of the Amalekites, when he spared the king. David is finishing the job that Saul and previous generations failed to finish. Now, now some still protest, well, even if David were carrying out this Canaanite uh, initiative, uh, he's, he's taking the spoils, and you're not supposed to take the spoils. He's killing the people, but he's taking the livestock. Well, remember also, uh, even during Joshua's time, God's people were allowed to take the spoils. There were two cities that they were not to touch anything in. There was Jericho, which you, know, you can't take in. Jericho is the first fruits. Everything goes to God out of Jericho. And Hazor was another city that they were not allowed to touch any of the spoils from. But for the rest, in Joshua's day, they lived off the land. They lived off of the produce of their, of their conquest. Um, unless they were otherwise directed, they were allowed to take these things. And so David is doing that. I have no reservation in saying that what David is doing here and carrying out this warfare against the Amalekites is precisely what God has commanded and wanted Israel to do ever since Joshua entered the land. David is pleasing to the Lord in this. He is well-pleasing to God. He's doing what Saul should have been doing. Uh, David, I guess he could have taken this time to just kind of hang out in his tent, you know, drink wine, eat good food and do nothing and just enjoy the, the refuge that Philistia gave him. And, and, and he, he's got a great excuse. He could say, well, my hands are tied. What, what can I do? I really can't do anything. I'm just in a very tough situation. But that's not the kind of man that David is. He's got to do something. And God's commission to conquer Canaan is still lying out there unfulfilled. There's work to get done. He's got the men and the resources to, to, to do it. So David says, let's get after it. Let's not lose our edge and grow weak and tired and lazy. Let's not let our wives and children and servants start to think that we're Philistines. Because if, if we live here and we grow up here and we don't carry on the commission that God gave us, all these people might start to think that we kind of belong here, that these are our people and this is where, we, this is where we're going to stay, which is not the case at all. And so to keep this sense before us that we are Yahweh's men, then we're going to keep fighting Yahweh's battles and we're going to go out and, and, and destroy Yahweh's enemies that he has required us to fight. Uh, notice these aren't carefree raids that David is engaging in. He's, he's not just going out as some crazy man, just, just killing indiscriminately. Um, you also see that, that he balances his relationship to Achish and his commitment to his own countrymen through all of this. So, so Achish is under the impression that David is running around in the territory of Judah, uh, making war against men of Judah. But that's not the case at all. David is going to Judah, he's honest, when he comes back and Achish says, where'd you get all this stuff? And David says, oh, I got this in the land of Judah. Well, yeah, he got it in the land of Judah, but he got it from the Amalekites who are living in the land of Judah. He's, he's, he's playing both sides at once and he's doing such a masterful job of coming back and telling Achish with a straight face, yeah, I went down to Judah today and I brought you all this stuff back. And Achish is pleased, but David is not making war on the men of Judah. He's making war on the Amalekites. And all this time, Achish is thinking, boy, I've really got a great resource here in David. And when it comes time for me to attack Israel, you know, I've got this, I've got 
got this guy who knows how things work, and Achish is feeling pretty strong. In the last verse of, of this chapter, um, Achish has the understanding that David is doing nothing but making Israel abhor him. But all this time, David has not laid a single finger on anything that belongs to Israel. He hasn't hurt or touched a single Israelite. The way he's able to handle this is so shrewd and, and witty. David's people get to sleep in houses, not caves. They get to eat plenty. They get what they need. They get to wage war against God's enemies, all the while staying safe from Saul among the Philistines. This can't last, right? This is not sustainable. This, this is certainly something is going to happen to put stress on this whole arrangement, right? Well, yeah, it does. Chapter 28. Now it came to pass, it happened in those days, that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, you assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle you and your men. So David said to Achish, surely you know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, therefore, I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Achish is going to go to war with Israel. And he's assuming that David is just going to suit up and go with him. And he promises David, I'm going to make you one of my chief guardians forever. What now, David? Uh, how are you going to get out of this pickle? You know, you've, you've set this up. Something has got to give. How is this going to turn out? Are you going to really go with Achish with all of your men? Are you going to raid your own countrymen? Or are you going to now come clean and say, Achish, let me tell you what's been going on. Well, watch what the author does here. There's, there's all this building tension here. David is in another tight spot. What will he do this time? How is he going to get out of it? And then the author of Samuel leaves us hanging there. We're going to go find out what Saul is doing. Because what Saul is doing right now is even more tense. It's even more anxious. It's even more difficult to comprehend than the situation that, that David is in. Uh, David, Saul is in a tighter spot. It, it's like if you're watching uh, game seven of the World Series, it's the bottom of the ninth, two outs. The home team is down by four runs and the slugger for the home team come up, comes up to the plate and uh, so filled with tension, so filled with excitement. And then uh, the news anchor comes on. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you an important message. Canada has invaded Michigan. And you say, oh, Canada, I knew. They seemed so nice this whole time, and now they've invaded us. Well, suddenly that becomes way more important than whatever's going on in the World Series, right? Well, that's what happens here. We interrupt the story of David with some very awful, pathetic news about Saul. And in fact, what happens now is one of the most disturbing stories in the whole Bible, really. Um, it's it's one, of the one of the most difficult I have to come to terms with and, and figuring out and understanding uh, what's going on here. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and then we're just going to dive in with the time we have left. So verse, picking up in verse 3 of chapter 28, and I'll read to the end. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put out the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. Then the Philistines gathered together and came and encamped at Shunem. So Saul gathered all Israel together, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of Yahweh, Yahweh did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. 
Then Saul said to his servants, find me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other clothes and he went and two men with him and they came to the woman by night and he said, please conduct a seance for me and bring up for me the one I shall name to you. Then the woman said to him, look, you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life to cause me to die? And Saul swore to her by Yahweh saying, as Yahweh lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? And he said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman spoke to Saul saying, why have you deceived me? For you are Saul. And the king said to her, do not be afraid. What did you see? And the woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is covered with a mantle. And Saul perceived that it was Samuel and he stooped with his face to the ground and bowed down. Now Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? And Saul answered, I am deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. Therefore, I have called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. Then Samuel said, so why do you ask me seeing Yahweh has departed from you and has become your enemy? And Yahweh has done for himself as he spoke by me, for Yahweh has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of Yahweh, nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, Yahweh has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, Yahweh will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Yahweh will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines." Immediately, Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him for he'd eaten no food all day or night. And the woman came to Saul and saw that he was severely troubled and said to him, look, your maidservant has obeyed your voice and I have put my life in my hands and heeded the words which you spoke to me. Thou, therefore, please heed also the voice of your maidservant. And let me set a piece of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I will not eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him and he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fatted calf in the house and she hastened to kill it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. So she brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate. Then they arose and went away that night. Well, we get to hear about the Philistines gathering from war from the other side. We saw David and Achish gathering for war on one side of Philistia. Now Saul hears about it from the other side and he doesn't know what to do. And we're reminded once again, we've already been reminded of this, but we're told once again that Samuel is dead and buried. This leaves no revelation. This leaves no counselor for Saul. When Saul prays, heaven is shut up to him. There's no answer. The three sources of revelation available to him come up empty. The prophets have no word for him. The Urim and the Thummim aren't there because he's killed the priest and the high priest is living with David. Not even his dreams give him direction. Should his dreams give him any direction? Well, it seems that dreams are a way that God communicates with kings, with Joseph, with Solomon, with Nebuchadnezzar. 
but even those aren't reliable for Saul. Now, now for us, our prophet, our priest, our king, our source of revelation is Jesus and his word, the Bible. The Bible is where we read the prophets. It's where we hear from the priest. It's where we gain kingly wisdom. And it is our source of, of revelation. But Saul lived in this day where he had these three sources and all of them were cut off. None of them were helping him. Moreover, Saul has put out all of the false prophets. He's put them out of the land, the mediums who consult the dead, the wizards who, uh, who speak on behalf of the dead. Now, early on in his life, Saul had kicked all of these out of the land, but now he begins to regret this. And the fact that he's regretting it shows how far he has moved from his earlier commitment to the Lord. Now Saul is an apostate and he's got the worst of both worlds. He doesn't fit in among the elect, among God's people, and he doesn't fit in among the pagan. He, he, he doesn't have the word of the Lord and he doesn't have the help of the mediums. So he tells his men, go find me a witch so I can go to her and ask some questions. And his men don't say, huh, a witch. I don't, I don't know where you find one of those. I, I think you got rid of all of them and I don't know. They know where one is. They know exactly where one is and they know how to get to her, which is pretty telling. Have they been going to mediums and spiritists? They, they don't have to think too long. There's a woman in Endor, which happens to be on the other side of Philistine occupied territory, but they know how to get to her. And so to get to Endor, Saul's going to have to sneak around the Philistine lines to visit this woman. He disguises himself. He takes off his recognizable kingly robes. He puts on the clothes of a commoner. He goes with two men. They go and find the woman at night. He asks her to consult with the dead and bring up whoever he wants. The fact that he believes that this will work, and this is a thing that you're supposed to do in this situation is remarkable. David is hemmed in, David is desperate, and David wisely works out a good solution. David is hemmed in and desperate, and he acts completely foolishly here. Now, the woman thinks this is a trap. She says, you, you've come here on a sting operation. You know that this is illegal. Saul has cut off all the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why do you lay a snare for my life, she says. Saul responds by invoking Yahweh's name, and he says, I, I, I swear by God's name that you're not going to be hurt in all of this. And, and, he, and in naming God's name, he seeks help from a source that God has condemned. This is truly using God's name in vain. He's, he's keeping this odd syncretism. He's, he's invoking Yahweh's name as he goes to a witch. It's like, it's like uh, you know, singing, singing a psalm you know, while you go to uh, um, live with your girlfriend. I mean, it's this odd kind of uh, uh, living in two worlds at once. Um, and she concedes, however. She says, who do you want me to bring up? And he says, Samuel. And there's an odd break in the story here because we don't know what she does. There's no how-to manual here. There's, there's no, no information here that would give us anything to work with to, if we wanted to try this out. All we see is she says, you know, who do you want me to bring up, Samuel? And the very next thing, the woman sees Samuel. She cries out with a loud voice. Now, the burning question for me is, what did she see? Whom did she see? Was this a trick? Was this a demon? Was this really Samuel? What is going on here? Well, we can take comfort in knowing and, and some, uh, uh, some uh, confidence in the fact that the inspired author calls who is speaking here, calls him Samuel. And the author doesn't give us any indication that it's not Samuel. 
But at the same time, again, we don't get a lot of details. You're not going to get anything here that teaches you how to do this or teaches you the fine details of necromancy. But she screams when she sees Samuel. I think that's also telling. She recognizes him by his robes, by his mantle. And is she screaming because this is the first time that this has actually worked? Is she screaming because she sees uh, something other than the familiar spirit that she's used to dealing with, the, the demon or, or the familiar that she's used to uh, uh, talking to? Is it possible that her, her routine was a lot of trickery and a lot of sleight of hand? Is it possible that she screams because when she sees Samuel, she realizes that only Saul would want to talk to Samuel this way. And therefore, since her customer was Saul, this was a setup and she's doomed. Maybe all of this is going through her head at once, but she melts down. She, she screams and uh, she uh, uh, makes a scene. Now, however we think about this, I, I want to be careful not to say she could have never communicated with the dead. Whatever is going on here, it was impossible for her to communicate with the dead and that, and that there's no basis whatsoever to sorcery or necromancy. Scripture forbids these practices not because they don't work. Scripture forbids these things not because, not because there's no basis to them or because they're futile. They're forbidden because they're pagan. Yahweh forbids Israel to use these things because they're wicked, not because there's no basis to them, right? Surely there's a lot of folly and surely there's a lot of charlatanism and, and surely there's a lot of, you know, uh, 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 snake oil salesman stuff going on then as now, but also there is a reality. We do live in a world that has both seen and unseen components to it. And there are those who pursue uh, the wicked and the demonic. And it's wicked, not because it's not real. It's wicked because it is real. It's wicked because there is a dark power there. And what is going on here must be, it must have been very real. How do we explain this then? Well, it seems to me that by the power and permission of God, this woman was indeed able to contact Samuel, the real Samuel. And for his own reasons, God allowed Samuel to come up from where he was resting and speak this word of truth to Saul and condemn Saul. What, what does Samuel say to Saul? Well, Samuel says something he's already said. Samuel says the very same thing he said the last time he talked to him. God has torn the kingdom from you and you're doomed. You're going to die tomorrow. That's pretty much what he said, you know, last time, except for the fact you're going to die tomorrow. Uh, this, this is a bit of new revelation. But after Samuel says this, Saul is as white as a sheet. Saul falls on the ground and he's dreadfully afraid. Again, there's no repentance. Over and over and over, this is what's been so frustrating about studying the story of Saul is that he's sorrowful, he weeps, he's remorseful, but there's no repentance. Sorrow often accompanies repentance. Sometimes we need uh, for our children to be sorry so that we can work out repentance, but sorrow by itself is not repentance. And that's what we've seen over and over. Saul is terrified, but he's not asking for forgiveness. He's not repenting. And this is something that Saul has failed to do repeatedly. Uh, he's he's, he's, he's um, uh, stiff-armed every every single counsel he's been given to repent. Well, uh, he, uh, he now um, 
we find out he's been fasting this whole time, maybe fasting in, in preparation to go see the witch. The woman uh, impresses upon him to eat. He refuses, but finally Saul agrees to eat, and she whips up a pretty sizable meal. So we're given this picture here. Saul's about to die tomorrow. We've just been told that. So this is Saul's last supper. And where is he eating his last supper? He's eating it at a table of demons. Saul is participating in a feast at the house of the dead. Saul isn't among the prophets anymore. He used to be among the prophets, but now he dies among the witches. He's among the witches eating among them. This is like a parody of the Passover. He's eating unleavened bread at night, a preparation for an exodus the next day, but it's kind of a reverse exodus. Saul is on Pharaoh's side. The next day, Saul is going to die in battle. The next day, Saul is going to lose his firstborn, Jonathan, in battle as well. And this will allow David to come out of Egypt. David will be freed from bondage. David will be freed from the terror of Saul and go on to reign as the rightful king. I love passages like this, even though, even though we've got so many more questions and so, so many more things that answers uh, are, are not readily apparent to, to some things. Still, passages like this set up the antithesis so clearly, draw the battle line so sharply. You are either communing with God and his people. You are the communing with Jesus, even, even as David does when he's living out among the pagans. He's, he's communing with God's people. You're either communing with, with God's people or you're communing with demons as Saul does. There, there's no option C. There's no neutral uh, middle of the road option. You either eat with Jesus or you eat with demons. You're, you're going to eat. That, that's not a question. You're going to worship. You're going to worship something. You were created for worship. The question is not whether you will worship. The question is what you will worship. And here in this void of right worship that Saul has created for, your, for himself, you see he hasn't somehow found satisfaction and rest. No, he goes clawing for something to fill the void. And that void is something that God has condemned. And here at the end of his life, we see Saul feasting at a table of demons. There's so much more to say, and I've got a few more other observations. I'm going to save those for next week because I want to, I want to give them the time that they deserve. Uh, but passages like this are so, are so difficult in, fact, in the way that there's not these easy, ready applications. Well, what's an application? Well, don't go to witches. Okay, we got, don't go to witches. Don't get your palm read. You know, don't, don't even open a fortune cookie if that hurts your conscience. I mean, this stuff is, is nasty. But what, what, what more uh, to, to this is there? Well, there's, there's this, um, that, that Saul has so hardened his heart. He has so resisted counsel. He has so resisted God's word that we find him at the end of his life in this pathetic, awful, desperate, ugly, nasty situation. And you know, Saul had a great start and this is where he ends up. And if this happens to Saul, the anointed of God, a man who was a prophet, a man who was chosen to be Israel's king, it can happen to me and it can happen to you if you harden your heart, if you do not practice repentance and forgiveness. If you do not cry out to God to make things right when you sin, when you're confronted with your own evil, if you insist upon living in your own bubble of self-justification, you end up like Saul, far, far away from God. 
far away. Practice forgiveness. Learn repentance. Keep a soft heart or else you'll find yourself communing with demons one day and you won't even know how you got there. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are uh, horrified and we're terrified by, by this event in Saul's life. And uh, we, we do have questions, but uh, we, we do rest in what you've told us and rest in what you have, have provided that um, you are the source of revelation. You alone are the source of life and food for our souls. And so, Father, may we always turn to you, communing with you and your people and reject everything that is outside of your counsel, outside of your will. Father, guide us in this. Drive us to your son when we sin. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus, our savior. Amen.